Hello everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Will Parker from the University of Sheffield in the north of England. Will has written, along with his colleagues in Sheffield, an education in heart paper which is all about antithrombotic therapy in patients with chronic coronary syndromes. I hope you enjoy the show and please feel free to leave us a review and a comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe we can start by you introducing yourself for the Heart Podcast, Will. So uh, I'm Dr. Will Parker. I'm a clinical research fellow uh, at the University of Sheffield. Um, I have a, a, an academic and clinical interest in vascular prevention, um, particularly with patients uh, with coronary artery disease. Um, I'm just coming to the end of a PhD um, looking at antithrombotic therapy and how we can optimise dosing regimens during dual antiplatelet therapy in particular. Mm. And um, I'm very happy to be talking to the journal. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much indeed uh, for joining us, Will. Um, You've written an education in heart piece, which is called Antithrombotic Therapy for Patients with Chronic Coronary Syndromes. Maybe we can start by you talking about what you mean by a chronic coronary syndrome. What is it? Because it's a fairly new term, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think we're probably all more familiar with the term acute coronary syndromes, um, which of course mean myocardial infarctions and unstable angina. Um, But uh, for patients without acute coronary syndromes or in that year after an acute coronary syndrome, there's not really been a unifying term that that satisfactorily covers them. So crudely, chronic coronary syndromes uh, apply to anyone with coronary artery disease who isn't in the first year after an acute coronary syndrome, but that more specifically includes groups um, such as those who have had a previous acute coronary syndrome event, um, who have stable coronary artery disease and stable angina, uh, or those even who have asymptomatic coronary artery disease on imaging. Okay, so the kind of thing you might see on a a cardiac CT scan in passing or a lung CT scan. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Lovely. So um, they would come under the chronic coronary syndromes banner as well as those you know, very high risk patients at the other end of the spectrum um, who've had you know multiple events, multiple revascularization, etc. And in your piece, you talk a lot about the the biology, the pathophysiology underlying chronic coronary syndromes. Mm. Um, and you mentioned something that was interesting to me, where you talk about atherosclerotic plaques being thrombotic even when intact. Can you expand on that a little bit? What do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, an atherosclerotic plaque um, causes vessel wall disease and vessel wall dysfunction. There's a constant balance between um, prothrombotic factors, mainly coming from the blood, from platelets in particular, um, and antithrombotic factors, mainly coming from the endothelium, things like uh, prostacycline, and even just being negatively charged. And um, you get loss of these even during um, uh, unruptured plaque formation. Um, for example, you get release of things like tissue factor from uh, plaques. You've got a very intense inflammatory response, particularly in unstable plaques, um, that even when intact can cause um, uh, exudation of, uh, of pro-inflammatory cytokines, which can have direct effects on platelets and um, on uh, inflammatory cells. Uh, and you get loss of the endothelium. So um, it's, it's rather akin to uh, the blood vessel wall almost um, having a hole in it from a, a thrombotic perspective. So you lose that Teflon layer of endothelium okay. and, and this can upset the balance. And what actually happens when the plaque ruptures? What's the what's the broad sequence of events leading to uh, an acute coronary syndrome? So uh, broadly you get um, 
a pov plaque rupture or erosion, you get two separate systems activated, but with a lot of interplay. So on the one hand, we have uh, platelet activation. Platelets are activated by things like collagen, which uh, they are exposed to in high levels upon plaque rupture. Um, this triggers uh, a number of processes within platelets. Uh, for a start, you get thromboxane release. Um, you get degranulation of uh, dense granules containing ADP that act on the P2Y12 receptor in particular, uh, and you get um, degranulation of alpha granules that contain things like P-selectin, which recruit um, leukocytes into the response. Furthermore, you get um, shape change that occurs. So platelets become from a kind of discoid shape to stellates, so almost stick to each other like Velcro. And this is reinforced by uh, glycoperitene GB23A, uh, GB2B3A, uh, um, uh, binding between platelets. On the other side of things, we have the coagulation cascade, which is again triggered by collagen through the intrinsic pathway uh, and uh, via tissue factor uh, through the extrinsic pathway. Um, and uh, the upshot is that you get thrombin generation and thrombin uh, uh, will cleave fibrinogen, which is insoluble into, uh, which is soluble, sorry, into um, insoluble fibrin. So you get a, uh, a mesh of fibrin strands that forms a physical clot. And there's interplay between the two systems because thrombin itself can activate platelets and platelets play a role in thrombin generation through membrane uh, enzyme activity. So um, it's a bit of a vicious circle uh, and you result with, uh, in a, a platelet and coagulation factor uh, rich clot that causes um, vessel um, uh, occlusion and uh, therefore hemodynamic uh, effects. Okay, and you've got a very nice uh, figure there, the figure one in your article, which mm. shows this uh, in some detail. And you also go on in that figure to talk about the various different drug agents we've got, uh, yeah. which can, uh, which are designed obviously to uh, reduce both the antiplatelet and the uh, the anticoagulant effects of that issue. Can you talk about perhaps starting off with antiplatelets? Yes, absolutely. So um, broadly, kind of the the oral agents that we use in patients with CCS. Um, from an antiplatelet point of view, divided to aspirin, which is a cyclooxygenase inhibitor. Uh, cyclooxygenase one in platelets is um, involved in a chain that uh, results in thromboxane generation. So aspirin, even at very small doses, shuts off uh, thromboxane generation. Then we have the P2Y12 receptor, and we talked a bit about ADP uh, from dense granules. Well, the P2Y12 receptor system acts as a sort of central volume control um, in uh, um, platelet activation. So stimulation of P2Y12 causes an amplification of responses to various different agonists um, and therefore the P2Y12 inhibitors damp down this. Um, there are a number of different P2Y12 inhibitors that have been developed. Um, first uh, was uh, teclopidine, which we don't really use but uh, anymore, but clopidogrel um, remains in widespread use. Um, and then its fellow uh, thionopyridine, prazogrel, um, and uh, later the um, uh, the non-thionopyridine agent to Cagrelor. And okay. then, sorry. Um, yeah, keep going, please. Uh, and then um, on the, uh, the anticoagulant side, we have, again, um, two main class of agents. We have the vitamin K antagonist, things like warfarin, um, which, uh, as the name suggests, um, inhibit vitamin K-dependent factors, um, which in maintenance therapy, uh, there is a net balance towards inhibition of prothrombotic factors, 
um, 2, 7, uh, 9 and 10 um, and uh, results in uh, prolongation of the prothrombin time, etc. And then we have the newer agents, the non-VKA oral anticoagulants or NOACs, and these are either uh, factor 10A inhibitors like apixaban, adoxaban and rivaroxaban, but also we have a direct thrombin inhibitor, uh, dabigatran. Perfect. And again, they are on your figure one and mm. there are nice arrows showing at which point in these cascades and complexes these drugs act. Um, and this was all brought into sharp focus uh, in 2019 because the European Society of Cardiology released a guideline for chronic coronary syndromes, which covers many practice areas. Um, and I think uh, certainly when I read it, it did make things much more straightforward for me to to understand this difficult area. Um, what do you think are the most important or perhaps interesting changes uh, in the guideline from the previous version? Before think, we get into some of the specifics, should we say? Sure. So, so I think I think broadly there are there are two things. This guideline replaced the previous stable CAD guideline, but um, has expanded the scope to to anyone with what we call a chronic coronary syndrome. I, I think broadly um, there's been changes in diagnosis. Um, so. Um, things like exercise testing have gone down the priority list and things like CT coronary angiography have, um, have gone up the priority list. And mm. I think that's, uh, that's an interesting change that, that is certainly reflected in, in, in our practice. I think broadly the other uh, big difference is that we've got many more options now for intensification of, of treatment of, of risk factors. And um, again, this is reflected in the new guideline. Obviously, in, in this review, we talk about... Um, the antithrombotic therapy side of things, but there are also uh, a lot. Of, there's a lot of new data on on blood pressure targets and cholesterol and PCSK9 inhibitors, for example, and optimizing diabetic management in those with diabetes mellitus, for example. Mm. So um, I, I think um, it, it's uh, it's kind of taking a broader approach um, and and really reflecting that there's been a huge number of developments. Um, for, for these patients uh, over the last few years, in just the seven years that uh, since the last guideline. And shall we focus in a little bit then on the, uh, the management of patients in some of the categories of CCS, if that's okay? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first one I've written down in my notes here is what kind of thrombotic therapy should we, looking, should we be looking to use in patients with sinus rhythm? Um, when should we use a single agent or should we always use a single agent? And remember, these are, just for the listeners, these are patients who are more than one year out from an acute event. So they're chronic with stable angina or they have the presence of atherosclerosis confirmed on an imaging test. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's obviously a, a very large group of patients mm. and um, uh, there's obviously the setting of um, uh, of elective PCI, which is which is slightly different to maybe we can come on to in a bit. But mm. um, but in those kind of outside that setting in, in the maintenance phase, um, first of all, you need to decide whether uh, any antithrombotic therapy is recommended or not. Uh, and currently the guidelines um, state that it's recommended if the patient has a history of myocardial infarction or revascularization, or if um, it may be considered if there's definitive uh, evidence of coronary artery disease on imaging. And in fact, if those, those criteria aren't uh, met, then there isn't a, a, there isn't actually very good evidence for antithrombotic therapy. Okay. Um, in in the patients who where antithrombotic therapy is is recommended, um, you kind of start off as a baseline with single antiplatelet therapy, uh, most usually with aspirin uh, at a low dose, seventy five to one hundred milligrams once daily. Uh, but you can use clopidogrel if they're aspirin intolerant or if they have other factors such as 
peripheral arterial disease or cerebrovascular disease that push you towards that. The central um, idea really in these guidelines is that you, you make a, an assessment of bleeding risk. And if the bleeding risk is high, you don't escalate the, uh, the therapy. Um, if the bleeding risk is not high, you would go on to assess the ischemic risk using um, defined criteria in the guidelines. And if that is high, so in other words, if the patient has high ischemic risk, but does not have high bleeding risk, then a second antithrombotic drug um, should be uh, considered. And um, there are a number of different options for that. And again, you've put a very nice uh, figure in a table which outlines, or it's, it's really a flowchart, isn't it, that outlines mm -hmm. the, the broad management of several of these categories of patients. But perhaps we can briefly touch on when you might use dual antiplatelet therapy or DAPT in this yeah. stable group. So absolutely. So um, this DAPT is, uh, is the evidence is strongest in the post-MI population and for patients who have already tolerated one year of DAPT. So we'd be typically looking at somebody who's transitioning from an acute coronary syndrome phase the year after their event and has tolerated DAPT um, with, with any uh, suitable agent um, and is then transitioning into the chronic coronary syndromes uh, stage. And if their ischemic risk is, is deemed to be high, but the bleeding risk is not high, um, then the general recommendation is that they should continue what they've been uh, receiving. Um, in, in patients who um, are not post-MI um, or not had a prior MI, um, there's, there's less uh, robust evidence for use of DAPT uh, in the prolonged phase. So we're really focusing the DAPT on those patients who've had an MI in the past. Okay, when they've got ongoing high ischemic risk, but they've tolerated mm. the treatment well. Yeah, absolutely. And haven't got a high bleeding risk, you suggest continuing. Well, not you, but the guidelines suggest continuing yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as we are, as it were. Okay, and one thing that certainly is new is the recommendation for low-dose rivaroxaban in these absolutely. guidelines. Can you talk a little bit about the, the background to that? Yeah, so um, as we know from our, our Sort of biology of thrombosis there are two components and um, if we target both of these we know even in patients who don't have another indication for anticoagulation um, that anticoagulation uh, is improves ischemic risk albeit at a cost of increased bleeding risk and this was demonstrated previously with therapeutic doses of warfarin uh, back in the early 2000s and then um, with the atlas 2 study uh, showing a, a low dose of rivaroxaban in addition to aspirin and clopidogrel after an ACS event um, reduced ischemic risk compared to uh, aspirin and clopidogrel alone. Um, but this was this concept was taken uh, and tested in, in a more stable group of patients in the COMPASS study. Um, so uh, that enrolled patients who were essentially at high risk of ischemia. They didn't have to be post-MI. Um, they could have had multivessel coronary artery disease and uh, they could be over 65 or under 65 with additional risk factors um, and uh, randomized them to uh, three regimens, aspirin alone, aspirin plus this low dose rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams twice daily or rivaroxaban alone at a dose of five milligrams twice daily. And the upshot was that in that dual antithrombotic therapy group, um, they uh, they had a lower risk of uh, major adverse cardiovascular events on long-term follow-up. And this has resulted in uh, guidelines, uh, not only from the ESC, but also, for example, in the UK from NICE, uh, that patients who uh, meet the indication for that uh, regimen should receive it long-term as an option, um, as an alternative to uh, DAPT, where that's also an option. Okay, so again, people at the higher end of 
ongoing mm. ischemic risk. Absolutely. Perfect. And what about atrial fibrillation and chronic coronary syndromes? What's new in the guidelines there or interesting that caught your eye? Well, I, I think um, the patients with atrial fibrillation, there are two, uh, there are two broad situations. Um, there's the situation where they're having an elective PCI and um, we've got more robust data now in that uh, situation from, for example, the elective uh, subgroup of the Augustus study, um, which uh, suggests two things really, that um, a NOAC is better than a, a VKA. Um, so use one of those where you can, uh, and um, you can de-escalate therapy pretty quickly after, uh, from triple therapy down to um, oral anticoagulant, and in the case of Augustus, a P2Y12 inhibitor, usually within days of the PCI and keep that going for six months and then reassess. So I think we've got more robust data on de-escalation of uh, triple, from triple therapy after elective PCI in these patients. I think on the other side, um, where patients aren't having a PCI, and we're talking about long-term maintenance therapy, there's a greater understanding now that, that oral anticoagulation alone provides pretty good protection in the vast majority of patients from, um, from kind of arterial thrombotic events, as well as uh, occurring in the context of atherothrombosis, as well as uh, events, embolic events relating to, uh, to atrial fibrillation. So uh, again, there's a, there's a kind of feeling that de-escalating um, to, in most patients, uh, just oral anticoagulant alone um, will provide sufficient protection. And recently we've had um, data to back this up from the AFIA study, which was a Japanese study um, that suggests again that in this population, de-escalating appears to be safe, although that study wasn't completely powered to detect some of the, uh, the, the more um, granular ischemic endpoints. And again, you've gone through in the flow diagram uh, what people should be considering uh, in patients with, with chronic atrial fibrillation who have an upcoming PCI. Um, and yeah, as you say, it's very nicely uh, condensed in that diagram. It seemed the message seems to be the shortest possible time of triple therapy, um, as you say, then getting down to dual and then eventually, hopefully, just a NOAC. Does yeah, that, sum I think, uh, does that I, summarize I think, it reasonably? Yes. Um, with, with, there may still be patients um, that, that require more than um, a NOAC mm. um, alone. Um, and that's kind of something to discuss, uh, obviously, on an individual basis. Um, there's been some concern that the, uh, there's a signal for slightly higher risk of myocardial infarction in the AFIA study um, in those patients who, who stop their antiplatelet therapy. But we have, do have to balance it against bleeding risk. And overall, for most patients, it appears to be a safe thing to do. And if you have to come down on one again, according to your diagram, it seems to be NOAC plus clopidogrel sort of long-term yes, management right. if you need to go with one of the antiplatelets and a NOAC. Yes, clopidogrel is an odd drug because it has um, a wide range of effect of, of, of antiplatelet potency in different people, but mm. on average it has a lower potency than, uh, than the newer agents. Okay, and that's interesting. You did mention that earlier on in your article. Why is it that um, a fair number of the population are poor responders to clopidogrel? So clopidogrel is a, a prodrug, so it requires metabolism to become active. Um, and that pathway is uh, dependent on um, a number of enzymes, including a variant of cytochrome P450, 2C19, um, and uh, a significant proportion of the population are, uh, have poor activity of that enzyme, so are poor metabolizers. Um, uh, so uh, that's why you get this, this pharmacodynamic um, uh, 
resistance to clopidogrel. However, um, the newer agents, prazagrel is also a prodrug, but the pathway isn't um, subject to so much variation. And cagrelor is not a prodrug, so it's active as soon as it's absorbed. Brilliant. And um, just to finish off, uh, Will, do you have any conclusions or final thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? I think in general, we're kind of um, moving towards a more personalised approach, which obviously um, is a great thing. And, and as we get more uh, nuanced data on different subgroups, that's great. I think we just have to bear in mind that we continue to assess um, bleeding risk and ischemic risk and, and keep assessing those every time something changes. Um, obviously, things are, are, are getting more complicated, not less complicated with antithrombotic therapy. But because there's such a downside to the agents we give in terms of bleeding, we kind of have a duty really to, to keep an eye on that balance and to come to um, sensible and appropriate decisions uh, whenever we kind of encounter a patient who needs antithrombotic therapy. Mm, there really isn't a one-size-fits-all for this at all, is that by any no, means? No, absolutely. And are there any other areas, just to finish off, uh, within this um, sort of area of, of practice that you think are still not resolved, where, where ongoing trials may give us some further insights and help us to manage patients better? I think I think we're, we're diverging into um, two main categories of patient. We're the patient who we can de-intensify their treatment um, uh, rapidly, and uh, the patient in whom requires intensification of their therapy in the long term. I think we've got lots of evidence about intensification of therapy. Where we're seeing a lot of trials now is in the de-escalation of antiplatelet therapy, even in situations such as PCI for ACS, mm. um, looking at um, you know coming down to three months of DAPT. Uh, and obviously we've had some studies in patients at very high risk of bleeding just using one month of DAPT. So I, I think we're, we're kind of following two different strategies, which is a perfectly rational thing to do. Uh, and, and it's about finding the balance between the two. Brilliant. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time, Will. It's been brilliant to talk to you. And thank you so much for writing such a comprehensive article for Heart. It will be free for two weeks from the release of this podcast. And I encourage all readers and listeners to uh, absorb as much as you can. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you.